May it please the court, counsel. Good morning, my name is Pam Vanderweel. I'm here with my colleague, Anna Yunker. We're here on behalf of the city of Brainerd. There's a, the court today is presented with a single narrow issue, and that's whether a public employer is permitted to reorganize its workforce to address a, pre a pressing financial and safety need if the reorganization results in the elimination of all the positions in a bargaining unit. There are a few undisputed facts that are material to this case. It's undisputed that in 2015, the city of Brainerd found itself in difficult financial straits. It did not have enough money to make capital improvements, its debt service fund was not keeping up with its debt, and its cash reserves were dangerously low. In addition to these citywide problems, there were problems that were unique to the fire department. In 2014, the fire department lost a grant that it had been receiving and that it was using to fund two firefighter positions, and so they had to lay off two full-time firefighters. Council, can I just interrupt you for a minute? Yes. Um, in the district court's order, um, footnote one, the district court says, and I'm just gonna read this now, quote, it appears the union is a section of a larger organization called the International Association of Firefighters, end quote. And I'm wondering if on this question about unfair labor practice and whether what the city did here violates uh, provision um, in the uh, other section of the statute relating to unfair labor practices with respect to the existence of an employee organization. Is the district court's um, footnote one about this sort of larger organization, is that at all relevant? It is relevant because the union is an international union as its name would, would imply. It has uh, bargaining units all throughout the state of Minnesota. What we're talking about here is a bargaining unit with five members. And so um, when the city um, eliminated those positions, it was eliminating five members of a, of a union that has members all throughout the state of Minnesota. City has, the city has conceded um, it appears throughout that you agree that you have essentially abolished the union by laying off those individuals. Am I correct? The city didn't abolish the union. Um, the city eliminated those particular positions. So the union itself is still functional. As I said, it, it interacts throughout the entire state of Minnesota. But that's not the position that the city has taken if, if when I read the briefs and the order. It, it, it's sort of interesting because we've never addressed an issue like this before. And so throughout the course of this um, case, I, I've come to look at it differently. I mean, if you look at the collective bargaining agreement, for instance, that collective bargaining agreement, well, first of all, the union right now is a party to this, to this litigation. I don't know how it would continue to be a, a party if the city had actually abolished it. Um, secondly, if you look at the collective bargaining agreement, the firefighters retain some rights even after they lose their jobs. For instance, they can be recalled back to the city if those positions are, are um, reinstated. So they could be reinstated throughout the term of that bargaining agreement. So clearly there is, there continues to be some sort of relationship between the city and the union, can, even though Can we just return to the chief's question though? You're not making the argument that to destroy, to undermine the existence of a union, you have to destroy the whole international, that's an international union, the IAT, the International Firefighters Union. That's not, the local bargaining unit is who you bargain with and that's what's relevant here, right? It's not the whole, it, that would be like saying you have to get rid of every teacher in the state because Education Minnesota represents every teacher in the state instead of just focusing on the school district local union. That doesn't make any sense at all. I, I agree. Okay. Um, on the other hand, the, the statement that we abolished the union is just far too broad, and it doesn't mean that the union doesn't continue to have continuing rights, and it doesn't have continuing powers. So what we're looking at here is the elimination of five positions and the potential that the, that the contract could still come into play at a later time. Um, in addition to the citywide problems that the city was having, the fire department was having its own problems. It had um, this federal grant that it's lost, it also needed new equipment. It needed a fire truck because the last time that any kind of capital equipment had been purchased was in 2007 when the city purchased the ladder truck. 
At the same time, the communities who were contracting with the city for fire services. Council, let me stop you. I, mm -hmm. I'm not sure um, opposing council is going to debate uh, that the city was in financial straits. It seems to me the, the real nub of the issue that we have to decide is given those financial straits and that budgetary concerns are uh, within the inherent managerial policies of the city, does that nevertheless give the city the right to eliminate all of the positions um, uh, of a particular bargaining unit when such an action uh, is an unfair labor practice, is, is specifically prohibited by the other provision of, of the statute. Isn't that really what we have to grapple with? I mean, I don't, I'll grant you, let's assume the city was in, in, in financial straits. Okay. Um, but let's deal with what happens when, given that's the case, because as I read your brief, you're, you seem to be suggesting that any time the city's actions fall within uh, uh, subdivision one of 179A.07, the city can take action, even if that means participating or, or engaging in a prohibited uh, unfair labor action. That's not the city's position at all. What's your position? Then? The city's position is that it needs the flexibility to be able to order its workforce and to be flexible to address developing needs that its city has in regard to public safety and budget issues. And those, those issues arise um, pretty quickly, you know, so you can't be constrained by a three-year period. So what you have is, if, if you say that, no, the city can't... Did you can't, not have a, a voice in what the term of that contract was? We did have a voice as to the term of the contract, but the term of the contract, the contract is in itself not an employment contract. The contract itself is nothing but a collective bargaining agreement. The purpose of that contract is to set the terms and conditions of employment for the employees if indeed they are hired by the city. It doesn't grant the, it, it doesn't bind the city to employ those employees for any length of time. It doesn't promise that the city is going to even employ those employees. What it does is it says, hey, you know, if we hire employees, what we're going to do is we don't have to negotiate with those individual employees about how much we're going to pay them or what their benefits are going to be because it's right here in this contract. But that doesn't mean that there was a fixed term of employment that was, that was made by that contract. At the time that the union um, negotiated that contract with the city, the union also knew that uh, this reorganization was in the air. The union had the opportunity to talk to the city about relinquishing some of its inherent managerial prerogatives. It could have said, hey, let's have a term of, of uh, employment for these employees, or hey, let's negotiate the reorganization. It didn't say those things. And the law says that in order to relinquish your inherent managerial rights, you have to do so explicitly. And it doesn't, it is not explicit in that contract that it, the city was relinquishing any of its inherent managerial rights. In fact, the only place at which any of this is even mentioned is in a clause in which the city explicitly says that it retains its inherent managerial rights. So yes, the city talked about this, the city negotiated with the union, but it was for the union to, make, to have the city make concessions to give up inherent managerial rights because the contract itself does not implicitly take those rights away. Council, let me ask you what your, the city's view is with regards to its inherent managerial uh, authority. Um, and let me give you a hypothetical situation. Let's, and I'm not saying that is this case. But let's say a city, um, a mayor and a city council run on a platform that they want to get rid of all unions in the city. And the first thing they do on the first day after they're elected is do a restructuring that gets rid of all union members in, a, in several departments. And they're very overt and candid about it, saying, we hate unions. So that exercise of inherent managerial authority, would that violate the unfair labor practices provision of PELRA? I believe it would. And the reason is because inherent, the inherent managerial policy provision gives public employers discretion to be able to fashion their workplace. But that doesn't mean that public employers can abuse discretion. And it is an abuse of discretion to make decisions such as that simply to abolish unions. But as a, as a matter of practicality, whether that would ever happen 
is, is, is a very low probability because we're talking about public safety here. We're talking about people who are providing vital public services to the city. The probability that cities are going to take this decision so lightly is very, very low. But regardless, if that did happen... Council, can we take Justice Lillahog's hypothetical but remove the statements that were made that were anti-union? Just read on a platform that they were going to work on the budget and balance the budget of the city. And so then they take office and they eliminate um, positions in the police department that are union and, and move them to part-time. Would that be a violation? Well, it depends. It depends on what the underlying motivation was. So you're, you're adding an intent element? I believe that in order to read the statute fairly and read all of the provisions together and to honor the intent of PELRA, one has to look at intent. Because otherwise, Where otherwise it, it eviscerates the inherent so managerial policy. Tell me policy. your best argument. Is it just reading it as a whole, or is there something else that you have to rely on? Because you agree with me that the word intent is not, is not in the statute. It's not in the statute, but if you look at the, at, at the statute as a whole, Inherent, the, the term, um, the, the provision that says that it's an unfair labor practice to impair or to interfere with the existence or administration of a union is very, very broad. It just says to interfere with the existence or administration of a union. But on the other hand, if you look at where it says inherent managerial policy and it defines what that is, it defines specifically that the organization of a city is a matter of inherent managerial policy. So that specific statement takes that, that act out of the rubric of an, of an unfair labor practice because it is clearly and expressly permitted as, a, as an act of discretion. So Council, could, could I just follow up on Justice McKeg's question a second? Um, in terms of intent, like an intent to discriminate against the union, isn't that already present in 179A.13, subdivision 2, 3, uh, where you actually have the word discriminating? So when I look at the plain language of the statute, I don't know why I would read something into sub two that is specifically in sub three already. Talking about discriminatory intent. I think that Perhaps subdivision 2-2 is broader than subdivision 2-3 and would apply to different instances than the one that we're looking at in this case. So, for instance, you could be looking at situations where you have a union that's just beginning to form, for instance, and, a, and the city is trying to impair that from happening. Um, there are a lot of different circumstances that I really haven't done a lot of research into, but where... Um, except for where, it's, where a city is actually, um, in this, like in this case, exercising its inherent managerial discretion, a city could impair the existence of a, of a union or the administration So, so council, uh, if, we have, if you're urging us to read an intent element into 2-2, can you tell us exactly how it would read? Um, I've got the statute in front of me. Would it... What, what words would you insert into 2-2 to make clear that there's an intent element? I don't know that I'm at liberty to insert any kind of words into the statute itself, but you have to look overall at whether or not the result of not reading that into that part of the statute results in something that's absurd. And what we're looking at here is a very absurd result that I doubt very much that the legislature ever intended to, to uh, come up with. Yeah, but my question is, what, what is the intent element? Intent to do what? And would it be for the primary purpose of, for, with a substantial purpose? I mean, how there, there are many different forms of intent elements. And is there any, any that you're in particular you're urging? I would say that it, it would be for the substantial purpose of. Okay, so now let me change my hypothetical. The, um, these newly elected mayor and city council members um, announced that they're getting rid of all union jobs, and they say it's for two reasons. One, we've got a budget issue, and number two, we hate unions. Would that be enough to uh, violate 2-2 uh, when, when you say you've got a mixed motive? I would 
I would posit that the appropriate analysis would be the similar analysis that the court uses in most employment cases. You'd look like you look at the McDonnell Douglas burden shifting test and you would just apply that. And so that is a test that is easily applied. It's been applied in numerous cases. And so the question is, would that would it violate that? Yeah, probably, because one could probably say that because of that statement, I mean, you've got some direct evidence right there. So I don't even know that you I, get I think there, though the McDonnell Douglas test is different than the substantial purpose test that you just uh, enunciated. Um, I think you, the employer has to articulate a legitimate reason and then the employee needs to show that's a pretext. Are you urging a pretext test here? I, I, I think if may, there's- maybe, maybe this needs to be thought out more. I think it does. And I don't know that this case is really the vehicle for that because this, it clearly wasn't the case here. The lower courts, looked at the city's business reason and said, yes, there's a legitimate business reason. We litigated that fully. And so there, there was no evidence of any kind of animus. There was no evidence that the city had any kind of improper reason. The city was able to show that it had a serious financial problem. It also had a public safety problem because it Council, had- Council, if we reject the, um, the, the requirement or the need for an animus or some form of an intent, what's your next best argument that would support you winning? The next best argument is, I would say that um, otherwise the court would have to read the statute exactly as it's written. Um, however, as written, because of the fact that organizational, um, the organization of an employer is a matter of inherent managerial policy, it takes it out from under the rubric of um, of, uh, in, of uh, an unfair labor practice. So if one were to read out the intent, then one would just say, okay, then in all circumstances, it's okay regardless of intent, which that's not the position that the city takes. Council, um, help me with this. I noticed in different parts of your brief, you point out that um, in subdivision 19, uh, dealing with terms and conditions of 179A.03, it ends with terms and conditions of employment are subject to 179A.07, which of course is the man inherent managerial uh, policy. And your argument, as I understand in your brief, is that that language is subject to, quote unquote, um, suggests that, um, that uh, 179A.07 basically trumps everything else. Uh, and am I reading you right? Am I understanding that right? That, that essentially it, it trumps um, any unfair labor practices that might also be in the mix? I don't know that I'd go quite that far. I think that it trumps um, terms and conditions of employment. I think that if this, the, that, that demonstrates that if the legislature had wanted um, unfair labor practices to that provision to trump inherent managerial policies, it would have so said in the section that defined inherent managerial policies. I don't want to say 100% that it trumps because, again, as I said, I don't think that taking the city's position would allow a city to just willy-nilly just make a decision to abolish well, unions if it wanted to. So okay. I, I want to be a little careful there. Okay, I appreciate that. And I guess my, my second point to that, though, is, is there any significance to the fact that when you look at 179A.13, dealing with unfair labor practices, at least as far as I can tell, and if it's in here, point me to it, it does not have that same is subject to language, which would suggest that that, that provision, the unfair labor practices uh, provision, is on par with the inherent managerial process. I mean, it, doesn't ha it does not have that same is subject to language. And I point it out just because so much of your brief deals with mm -hmm. that point. I don't... There's kind of a yes and no to that. I, I think that um, if, the, if the legislature were to have put that language in, then it would have made it very difficult for, um, for it to, how do I say this? Um, it would have watered it down too much, I believe. Because again, if you had that subject to language in it, then you couldn't look at animus at any point. And I don't know that the legislature meant to, to have courts just not do that. 
However, I think that at the same time, um, the, the, the legislature really put inherent managerial policy pretty much on par with, with um, unfair labor practices. There's a balance there. You, know, yes, you have well, to look at the two together. And I had one as well. But I don't get the sense from your brief that you consider unfair labor practices on par with inherent managerial authority. Help me with, well, maybe I'll just leave that statement out there. But my, my question, though, is this. Under your theory, you know, as I look at the list of unfair labor practices in subdivision two, many of those could also overlap and, and, and bleed into or have, say, budgetary implications, which, as I'm hearing you say, that is something that over which the city has inherent managerial authority. So is it possible that, that if the city engaged in any of those other things that are listed as unfair labor practices, if they bleed over into managerial authority, you can, you can essentially engage in those activities? I mean, for instance, if you look at number nine, refusing to comply with a valid decision of a binding arbitration panel or arbitrator, I could see how not that that could have budgetary implications. Does that mean the city can do that, can engage in that, simply because it has budgetary implications? Where's the line? That's what I'm trying to figure out in, in your position. I believe the line is when the city's act is purposely designed to subvert a union, is to prevent the union from being able to operate, if that is the purpose. If the city's purpose, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You can finish your answer. If, if the city's purpose is, as stated in the inherent managerial policy section, which is to validly change its organization, to validly make budget decisions, to validly um, you know, make decisions about selection of personnel, then it's an inherent managerial policy. But it's abusing its discretion. Those are not valid things if the purpose is merely to subvert the union. Council, by my count, I've, I've heard three potential uh, anti-union animus tests that you've enunciated today, purposely designed, which you just mentioned, McDonnell Douglas, substantial part. Were any of these anti-animus, was this anti-animus, union animus argument made in the Court of Appeals? Because I reread the Court of Appeals opinion this morning, and there's just nothing about it. It's all about whether IMP trumps an unfair labor practices claim. Did you make that argument in the Court of Appeals? We did make that argument at the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals argument was much broader than the one today um, because we were talking about all the other issues regarding the First Amendment claim and, and that. But we did talk about what the, the interpretation and how these were together and what, how, you know, okay. what trumps what, certainly. Thank you, Counsel. You have uh, 15 minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Tannock. <clears throat> Thank you. May it please the court, counsel. I'm Marshall Tannock. I represent the appellant in this, the respondent in this case, rather, the uh, Firefighters Local uh, 4725 from the city of Brainerd and its president, Mark Turner. President Turner is in the courtroom today, along with his wife, for this uh, presentation. Uh, what the city of Brainerd has done here creates a serious threat to the collective bargaining process in Minnesota and to public sector unions in Minnesota and perhaps elsewhere as well. It also constitutes a clear and unmistakable unfair labor practice under our Public Employees Labor Relations Act. The critical section of the act that, would be, that the appellate court properly cited is section 179A13 subdivision 2.2. That prohibits governmental units from taking action that interferes with the formation, the administration, or the existence of a labor union. Mr. Tanning, before you get ahead of steam, I see count one also pleaded violations of 2-1 and 2-3 of the Power Unfair Labor yeah. Practices provision, but the Court of Appeals didn't deal with those. Do you have any sense as to why not? Uh, well, I, I don't know why not. I think they, I think that I would, 
surmise that the Court of Appeals felt that this was such a clear-cut violation of the interference provision that it didn't need to address the other issues. We did raise those issues, as you note, <coughs> Your Honor, in our pleadings. We cited three prongs of uh, Section 2, the uh, interference with the rights of union members, the interference with unions, and discrimination in the hiring of uh, and firing of union employees, uh, union members. And we cited all those. We those were those were pled in our brief, uh, in our complaint. The appellate and they were argued in the appellate court. The appellate court did not address that. The appellate court felt, I believe, that it was sufficient to uh, uh, to uh, uh, resolve this case under Section Two which is the interference clause, which does not require abolition of a union, either at an international level or a local level. The word is interfere, not abolish. Counsel, now, we, we had uh, a lot of discussion um, during opposing counsel's principal argument about whether um, there is a, an intent component to sure. proving an unfair labor practices act, uh, unfair labor practice claim. And what I would like you to address is Foley, uh, which is cited in the briefs um, by this court, where um, I wonder if this court hasn't already decided that motive is an element of an unfair labor practices claim. Specifically at page, uh, let me see if I can, I don't know, maybe you don't have the case there with you. But in the opinion, we talk about, we say that a unilateral change is, is a prima facie evidence of a violation. And we go on to say, it is also well settled, however, that a unilateral change is not per se an unfair labor practice. And then we go on and talk about how the employer can defend by proving absence of bad faith. So haven't we already decided that the employer's motivation is relevant to a claim of an unfair labor practice? Well, it could be relevant, but it's not a def it's not an absolute defense. I did hear that. If it's relevant, then I said it is, could be relevant. Okay. Well, let's assume it is for purposes. Let's okay. just say Foley is is, as my question suggests, binding on the on the determination of motivation being relevant. Then, what do we do with this case? Is there a dispute of material fact about the city's motive here? No. Uh, the motive does not become the uh, the guiding element in deciding this case. This, this court and other decisions... So you would concede that the union didn't create an issue of material fact on the city's motivation here? No, we, well, we raised a First Amendment issue. We claimed that there was a First Amendment... We, we asserted a First Amendment claim. Okay, so, so there's a live issue about whether... It's not live anymore. The, because... The, 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 the trial court dismissed our First Amendment claim uh, and um, using a, 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 a version of the McDonnell-Douglas standard, and the appellate court affirmed that part of the decision. So the, the, the motivation issue isn't before this court, and it's not necessary to decide that. In the, a number of the, this court's cases, the, the issue of motive or purpose has not been addressed because it hasn't a factor. The general driver's case is one example of that. Also, the New Ulm of case. In both of those cases, the government entities, those are both school districts, contracted out work that was part of the bargaining unit. As a result, employees lost their jobs, and the issue there was whether that constituted an unfair labor practice. There was no discussion in those cases about whether there was or was not an illicit motive. And in fact, the suggestion here that there has to be some kind of illicit purpose or anti-union animus is simply not supported by the thrust of the case law. The cases cited by the, by the city have generally involved instances in which government entities have engaged in some kind of reassignment of duties, changed uh, employees' job duties, in some cases moved people from one job to another. The so let me ask you, Council, uh, let's assume a different set of facts. Let's assume the city decides um, to um, reorganize the department, whatever you call it, and three employees lose their, uh, their employment. Is that inherent managerial authority? Is the, is the city within its rights at that point? Uh, may not be, Your Honor. It depends. Uh, first of all, I, I think it's a misnomer to call this a reorganization. 
a reorganization could be something that, for instance, if the city were to decide we want to have a, a, an arson division in our fire department, or we want to move some people from one type of job to another, that would be a reorganization. Well, let's, as, let's assume it's for the reasons that they, they specify here, that it's a budget decision, and they decide to move three, three full-time positions to paid-on-call positions. It's straightforward budget, straightforward budget decision, inherent managerial authority of the city of Brainerd to make sure. that call, leaving two um, full-time employees. Um, is, uh, is that permissible? It wouldn't necessarily be an unfair labor practice under Section 2 because it wouldn't interfere with the administration for the formation administration or existence of the union. They, government units can lay off people for, for proven economic reasons. There's some dispute here as to whether there were legitimate economic reasons or financial reasons, mm -hmm. but certainly government entities can lay off individuals in appropriate circumstances for financial reasons. That's not what happened here because in this case, we had, there was a collective bargaining agreement that went into effect on January 1st, 2015. It ran for three years. Nine months into that collective bargaining agreement, with 27 months still remaining on the agreement, the, the city abrogated that contract. So, it so it's simply, so, but from, from just dealing with the legal issue here, um, from, your, from your position, it's the fact that all of the union positions were abolished that changes the character of this. It certainly shows that there was an interference with the existence of the union because the union doesn't, as a practical matter, exist anymore since all of there's no, there's no contract anymore in existence. The union, there's no jobs and there's no, uh, there's no functioning union, be, union because of what the city did. So the way it went about this and the effect of what it did both constitute unfair labor practice under the interference provision. Cost alone is not a, is not a, a cost savings alone is not a justification in any means or any way for what Council. happened What's your here. basis for making that statement? It seems to me the city, city councils have to face those questions constantly. I mean, they are. They do. I mean, that's the, well, anyway, go ahead. Tell me, tell me your legal authority for the position that cost savings alone is not enough. Well, as Justice Wright pointed out, any, a city, a, I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry, um, the, um, the decision by a government entity to so-called save money cannot violate other laws. For instance, a city could say, we are going to save money by not paying our employees minimum wage. Or a city could say, we're, going to say, we're in a budget crunch, we need employees to work more time, but we're not going to pay them overtime. But the, that problem, saves the problem money. I have with your position, Mr. Tannock, is that none of these statutes prohibit laying off. Uh, I mean, I, you have to point to the interference with the union provision, and it seems to me that's your best argument. But short of that, um, city councils make decisions all the time about whether or not they should retain employees. Is it your position today that the union contract means the city can't lay off individuals? No. The city can lay off individuals. That's not what happened here. This is not a layoff case. Some of the cases that are cited in, 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 by both sides were cases involving layoffs. For instance, one of the, one of the cases cited, cited, by, um, cited by the city is the Arrowwood case. That's a layoff case, and the question there is whether there were sufficient or legitimate uh, financial reasons for conducting that layoff. This isn't a layoff. This isn't a reorganization. This is a breach of an existing contract that had a union recognition clause. As Justice Hudson pointed out, I'm sorry, Justice Hudson pointed out, uh, many decisions by governmental entities impact budget or financial considerations. In fact, almost all do in one sense or another, but merely to say we're doing this to save money cannot be, a, 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 does not give them immunity from an unfair labor practice. Council, if so, yes. I'm sorry, finish your thought. If so, any government entity could say, we are going to violate the law in order to save money. We're going to not pay people what they're entitled to. We're not going to pay overtime. We're going to lay off certain people who are making more money than others simply in order to save money. So merely saying that a government entity is going to save money does not constitute a defense or an out from committing an unfair labor practice. Yes, Justice Hudson. Counsel, um, help me with a couple of the cases. Uh, one of the cases that um, your opponent cites is queering, if I'm pronouncing yes, it correctly. Yes. And for the proposition that 
um, we have already held that you can um, uh, abolish, if you will, for lack of a better word, an entire union um, uh, under, in, under the uh, inherent managerial authority clause. But when I looked at that case, it's a mixed bag, it seems to me. There, that, that language is in there, but, but when you actually read it, it looks like what the, it was, I think, a teacher case. Uh, it looks like what they, yeah, what they were doing was um, eliminating her specific position. But, but granted, there's some other language in there that does seem to support the city's uh, view. And I'm wondering how you view sure. that case and some of the other cases they cite uh, yeah. in terms of what we have held. Right. Well, I addressed that a little bit before, Justice Hudson, but the appellate court addressed queering, and that was the principal case that the appellate court talked about. Queer right. Queering is quite a different case. In queering, the school district, which was a small school district, eliminated the position of principal. They, how the principal who was the person who was occupying that position was given another position as a teacher. It didn't affect the union as such, and the person continued to have a job. In fact, the, you, you, the court talked about how the, teach, the individual, the, the claimant, retained her, quote, continuing contractual rights. In other words, she had a job. She couldn't have the principal job because the principal job no longer existed. So one position was eliminated, but the individual retained employment in a different capacity. That's not what happened here. In this case, there was no elimination of positions. The city of Brainerd still has a fire department. The fire department is now staffed by so-called volunteers or paid on-call individuals who are not in a union. All of those positions exist. The fire trucks are still there. Fire operators still exist. They're just not members of the union. Council, if, yes. if you prevail here, what's the remedy that you're going to be seeking from the district court? Well, it's a good question. And uh, the, the, the Pelra law is pretty broad in granting the trial court the authority to provide, to, to enter injunctive relief, equitable relief, and damages. We think there's, a, there's several different alternatives that would be available to the trial court upon remand in terms of providing a remedy for an unfair labor practice. One would be to consider injunctive relief. Now that would be somewhat difficult at this stage. We recognize this. It's been four years since, this, since, the, since the fire department was, since the union was decommissioned by the city. But it's conceivable that the trial court could order the employees to be, the union to be reinstated, the employees to be put back to work. That's not an unusual type of remedy for unfair labor practices at the federal level, which I think we can look to somewhat as a model. Secondly, damages are available, and the five union members would be entitled to damages consisting of lost income, lost wages, and lost benefits, which are substantial from uh, having their jobs taken away from them. And uh, another significant damage element here is the loss, the diminution of their pensions. So the damages are rather substantial for each individual, and we think the trial court would be entitled to award damages and also consider equitable relief. We would like to be restored to the position we were in before the violation occurred. Has the collective bargaining agreement now expired? Yes, it expired at the end of 2017. Does that matter? Well, there was, uh, there was 27 months remaining on the collective bargaining agreement at the time it was abrogated. So we would maintain that from an equitable standpoint, the firefighters ought to be restored to their jobs for the remainder of their contract, which would be 27 months. The parties may and then... then at the end of that 27 months, what happens? The parties, the city may decide it no longer wishes to negotiate with the, uh, the union and they can end the union relationship. That happens from time to time. They may negotiate a new contract. There's some procedures under the contract to give notice uh, uh, before abrogating so does the contract. Your, does your argument depend then on the fact that the city's action here took place during the term of the collective bargaining agreement? That's a major element of it, yes, because there was an existing contract. It had 27 months left to run. It had a recognition clause that says that all members of the fire department, are all permanent paid members of the fire department must be in the union. That's the recognition clause. The city's action with 27 months left to go, abrogated that. So that in itself is the, is a, constitutes an interference with the existence and administration of the union. A union can't administer itself if it no longer exists, and it, can't, uh, it, can't, it doesn't exist when all of the, the jobs of its members are taken away. The other question that I wanted to ask you about is, uh, if you assume that there's a conflict between these two statutes, the unfair 
uh, labor practice provision that you rely on and the inherent management uh, policy provision that the city relies on. If you assume that there's a conflict there, um, I wonder what, whether or not um, applying the rule from Foley um, in this context, in other words, looking to the motivation for the city would, uh, for the city's action, would be a way to reconcile those two statutory provisions, and I'd like you to comment on that. Well, I'll say there, uh, there is no conflict in our view between those statutes. They, they're independent, they exist separately, and they, and they can coexist. However, I understand you want me to assume that there is some type of conflict. I'm not sure what the conflict is that I'm supposed to assume is, but assume that... Well, the conflict, I mean, <laughs> the conflict is the city says, look it, we get to decide. I mean, right. the statute specifically says the number yeah. of personnel, that's for us to decide. Yeah. And you say, well, no, because that effectively destroyed right. the union. So that's the conflict. Well, I, I think, sure, I understand. All right, assuming that the, that, uh, the, that the uh, inherent managerial policy provision essentially trumps or negates the unfair labor practice. Well, yes. Well, I think you look and see if the city's action did in fact interfere with the existence, administration, or formation of a union. To the extent that, there's, that there is anti-union animus, I think that makes the case easier, but it's not necessary because the statute doesn't refer to intent. And as Justice Lillehug pointed out in his questioning, the city has a difficult time articulating what that standard would be. Well, can you accidentally interfere? Sure. You can accidentally interfere with lots of things. You can, uh, sure, you, the interference occurs because you're uh, impeding or blocking or obstructing something from occurring. If I could use a football analogy, pass interference, for instance, or a, a defender in a, pa in a football game may interfere with a ball being thrown to a receiver. I hardly with, think that's accidental. Well, no. It's the point of it. No, it, no it's not necessarily. A, a player could trip. Let's say a, a defender trips and falls and hits a, and strikes the offensive player. That still could be interference, even though there wasn't an intent. Or the player could actually be going for the ball, not intending to interfere, but the effect of it interferes. And that's what interference is. Interference doesn't mean intent. It doesn't need intent. To the extent that the city wants to in incorporate into the statute a new word that's not there, it's in the wrong part of this building. Council, it ought to be across the hall Council, talking about changing the statute. Let's say we decide that some kind of anti-union animus is necessary. Does your client have evidence in the record that this may have been motivated in part by anti-union animus as opposed to pure non-union budgetary considerations? Yes, we do. I mean, we, we, we do. We raised that issue in a First Amendment context, and we, our argument was, and we've, we've cited that, well, we, we didn't really cite it in this brief because the First Amendment issue wasn't, isn't before the court, but in the, in the appellate court, we cited ex numerous examples of statements made by city officials that reflected anti-union animus. For instance, the, the two key players in this decision were the fire chief and the city administrator. The city council ultimately voted on it, but the decision was, prop was propelled by the fire chief and the city administrator. The city administrator, the fire chief at one point in opposing, the union was quite vigorous in trying to prevent this from occurring, was taking public stands and holding press conferences and engaging in, 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 the, in the activities that unions engage in to try to protect their jobs and their existence. Do, do you agree with Ms. Vanderweel that yep. the question of whether anti-union animus is required for a violation of 2-2 was argued in the Court of Appeals? No. I mean, tell, it, tell, it, tell me it, more. Was, it, it wasn't argued in the Court of Appeals. It came up in the context of the First Amendment, but the city, as I recall, did not make any argument in the Court of Appeals that intent or purpose or animus is a necessary element of a statutory Pelra violation. Because the way the Court of Appeals opinion reads, and I haven't gone back to the Court of Appeals oral argument, but the way it reads is the city's position was if it's an IMP, an inherent managerial policy, then it can't be an unfair labor practice. That's what this argument, yes. The, 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 the issue Any of... Any um, issue of uh, intent come up under uh, 179A.13 subdivision 2.3? That was one of your three-pronged claims. Did 
did you present any evidence about discriminatory animus under that subsection? Well, we, it came up in the context, as I said, Your Honor, of a fir the First Amendment. I was referring, er, I mentioned earlier, the city, uh, the fire chief, for instance, referred to Mr. Turner, who was campaigning against the city's efforts to abrogate the contract, saying throwing mud, uh, he said, throwing mud on, uh, at us. There was an effort by the, 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 the uh, city administrator urged the council to act quickly because of the union was engaging in a successful campaign uh, as to affect public opinion. So there was instances, of, there was more than some, but there was a number of instances in which anti-union anti animus was reflected in the record. However, we did not argue that at the Court of Appeals level because we maintained and still maintain that anti-union animus is not necessary to establish a violation of the interference clause. It, it can be helpful, I guess, as I said earlier, if there was anti-union animus, I think that would certainly be uh, suggestive that there was interference, but it's not a necessary element in this case or any other cases with interference with the existence of the union. There's I want to go back to the Chief's question about if we find that these are two independent uh, provisions uh, in the law, you know, how do we resolve a conflict? And I thought your brief told us that we look to see which law is more specific. Well, that's one way. That's one traditional standard of, of, of statutory construction. If there's some, generally, the more specific provision prevails over the more general. That's one canon of construction. In this case, the the unfair labor practice provision is very specific in terms of referring to interference, administration, formation with labor unions, so it specifically addresses that topic, whereas the inherent managerial policy provision is rather general and generic. So if one resorts... But it's very specific with respect to personnel decisions. I mean, it says specifically. It's How many people you have is a decision vested with the in, in, within the scope of the internal well, it inherent management It doesn't authority. say how many people you have. It uses the word personnel. It uses the word personnel. It uses the word budget, but it uses it in the general sense. I just sense. think you could argue that either way. I mean, it really is kind of in the eye of the beholder in terms of which is the more specific here. Well, we think that the, what I said is that one statute, method of statutory construction is to look to see which one's more specific. We maintain that the unfair labor practice one is more specific. However, that's not the only basis to reconcile, as Justice Trudish asked in connection with your question, Chief, is how to, assuming that there is some conflict, and we maintain there isn't, but how to reconcile this conflict. And I think you can reconcile it by looking at what was the purpose, what's the purpose or intendment of the unfair labor practice statute. And the unfair labor practice statute is there to protect the rights of the collective of people engaged in the collective bargaining process and, of course, the union members who are part of that process. And that's what's so destructive of what the city of Brainerd did here. This, was, this action took place during the existence of a contract that had just been negotiated months before. The contract was negotiated in April of 2015. It was retroactive to January. So the contract had been in force for only a very few months before the city turned around, having signed a, a collective bargaining agreement, which is, I might add, a contract, although the city maintains it's not, having negotiated and signed a collective bargaining agreement with a union that recognizes the union as the sole and exclusive representative of all of its employees, and then three or four months later, with three, almost, with two and a half years, 27 months left to run, the city recants its own collective bargaining agreement, abrogates the arrangement. This is much more heinous, we maintain, than some of the cases that we've cited, the contracting out cases, the, which this court has held that contracting out is impermissible during a contract. General driver's case, school bus drivers contracted out. The New Elm case, food service work contracted out. In those cases, this court has said that contracting out union work during the bargaining agreement is impermissible as an unfair labor practice. This case is worse because this wasn't a contracting out case. This was an absolute abrogation of the existence of the jobs in the union that, that, to which those people belong. So we maintain this case was properly decided by the Court of Appeals. It should be affirmed, and the case should be remanded for determination of damages. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Um, Ms. Vanderweel, you have 15 minutes for rebuttal. I just want to make a few points. First of all, this case isn't the first time in which a city's 
Could you pull your microphone a little closer? Yes, sorry. There, there we go. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this isn't the first time a city's decision has resulted in the elimination of all the employees in a bargaining unit. Um, the cases that were cited by the um, Council earlier, General Drivers and, and the City of New Ulm, which are contracting cases, are cases um, in which the city or, or the employee, employer in both of those cases eliminated all the positions in the bargaining unit and contracted out with the third party. In those cases, the court never said that doing that was an uh, unfair labor practice because um, the the employer interfered with the, inter with the existence of a, unit, of a union. That wasn't anything that the court said. The court said, in fact, that that was a permissible act. It was permissible so long as it was um, included within the contract. So there, there's nothing that says that that is inherently an unfair labor practice. And what about the contract in this case? I'm sorry? What about the contract in this case? The contract in this case indicated that contracting out was permissible, that it was an inherent managerial right. Quiring is completely on point with this case. The only is difference- Is that what you did here? It, did you, this wasn't a contracting out. I, I would say that what the city did here was a lot more benign actually than a contracting out. If you look at contracting out cases, usually what happens is that after a, ser after a period of trying to negotiate, um, the employer doesn't reach terms that it likes with the union. So what it does is says, you know what, we're just not going to have you here anymore. And what it does is it just goes to a third party. Here, what happened was the city just determined that it, it didn't, it, these positions were just too expensive for the city to have. It needed a fire truck. It needed to address some serious financial issues. And so what it did was it did the reorganization. Council, help, help me factually. In the cases that you've cited, um, was there an ongoing collective bargaining agreement as we have here? In those situations, they were, um, most of the situations I believe, they were negotiating a new bargaining agreement, but the bargaining agreement still would have been effect by its own operation. So although the term had expired, it would still have remained in effect because there's like a, Okay. If the cities agree that after the term expires, the contract stays in effect, it will stay It's a continuation effect. clause, basically. Thank you very much, yes. And so the, in the other case, quiring, that we, that we discussed earlier, quiring is completely on point with this case. The only difference with quiring is there was one employee in the bargaining unit versus five. So in that situation, the court said, well, you know what, you, you did eliminate all the employees within the bargaining unit. In that case, there was a continuing contract in effect, and yet the, the court didn't find that there was any kind of unfair but labor practice. They, was, they reassigned was, her. Go ahead. Didn't they reassign her, though? They reassigned her to a position that was outside of the bargaining unit. It was a completely different position. If the city had had a completely different position, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that it would have re-signed them. I mean, they did have paid-on-call positions. The firefighters could have acted as paid-on-call firefighters. Council, so is uh, querying a case under 2-2 of the unfair labor practices provision, or was it a case involving when someone has an obligation to meet and bargain? I mean, have we, I, have we ever interpreted 2-2? Not that I know of, no. Okay, so that wasn't a 2-2 case. That was not a 2-2 case, okay. but the court has never said that it's a per se unfair labor practice to eliminate all the positions within a union. And council, am I missing something? I thought querying was a court of appeals case. It was a court so of appeals case. So we didn't say anything in querying. It was our colleagues. No, no, that's true. Okay, well, I, just, um, I thought maybe I missed another opi opinion. So what do you make of opposing council's argument that, that the, I mean, the difference between Wearing, even though it's not our case, um, is that the position was eliminated. There was no principal anymore. But here there are still people performing the function of firefighting, right? They're just paid less and they respond in a different way. So what impact does that have on how we should think about this case? So the city's not eliminating firefighters. They're eliminating a particular kind of firefighter that's paid at a certain level and that has certain job conditions but they're still having other people perform those exact same functions. How does that impact how we think about this case? They don't perform the exact same functions. So the full-time firefighters in this case staff the, the fire department 24 hours a day. 
And that's the big difference. It's because the paid-on-call firefighters are only called when they're needed to a fire. But what's the reason so, that they're there? What's the reason they were to there? To respond to fires and to medical emergencies. The reason that the full-time firefighters were there is so that there was always somebody at the fire station so that when the calls came in, there was somebody to answer those calls. Calls to do was what? Right, calls for emergencies. And what did the on-call firefighters do? They also call, they also respond. But the difference is that the full-time firefighters were at the fire station 24 hours a day waiting for those calls to come in. Whereas the paid-on-call firefighters are going about their normal lives. I, I, I understand all that. I, I get that there's differences in how they perform the function. So what a, I'm asking, though, is the function is still there, right, to respond to emergencies. And there was a contract that said, to do that, we're going to have this kind of position. And what the city did is to say that, no, we're not going to have that kind of position to respond to that function. We're going to do it in a different, cheaper, because of budget concerns, way. But should, so are you saying that we shouldn't consider the fact that the function that the people are performing is the same thing, which is to respond to emergencies? That doesn't matter? I would say that the function is not exactly the same. Because of, the, because of the fact that the paid-on-call paid firefighters were not at the department 24 hours a day. So that was a policy decision that was made by the city that the fire department does not need to be staffed by somebody Let 24 hours a day. Let me ask Justice Thiessen's question sort of the reverse yeah. way. Sure. Um, what functions that the FOEs were performing are no longer performed? Staffing the fire department 24 hours a day, being in the fire department, ready to, to, to the take those The trucks are calls. still maintained? Everything the else hoses is... hoses are kept in good condition? Every else, everything else is the same. When there's a fire, they respond and put out the fire? Right. And that's exactly the way it was before the fire, before the um, full-time firefighters positions were eliminated. The paid-on-call uh, firefighters were doing exactly the same thing at that time as well. So all, the, all that happened in this reorganization was that this one class of firefighter who was sitting at the fire station 24 hours a day is no longer there. So the contract doesn't but say... But those are the people that happen to be the union firefighters. That's true, but that's incidental. I mean, it wasn't, that decision wasn't made because, hey, they're union members. The, the decision was made because the city made the decision we don't need someone sitting at the fire station 24 hours a day. So the city wasn't saying, hey, let's just get rid of them because they're union members. And the contract itself, the collective bargaining agreement, does not say if we have firefighters here um, you know, to perform these tasks, they're under this contract. Council, when you're saying sitting at the fire station, you don't mean that to be pejorative, do you? I, I, I know full-time firefighters perform a variety of functions besides sitting. Of, of course not. Okay. No, I mean during during the course of the day they were they were maintaining trucks and doing all those other things. But you know, and there isn't somebody there 24 hours a day anymore doing those things. So I guess if you want to say, are there some functions that aren't being done? There aren't people there. There aren't full-time firefighters working at the fire department. You know, throughout the day maintaining trucks and doing the things that they were doing before. But really. I, I want to get back to the practicalities of the situation. First of all, um, unfair labor practices are unfair labor practices whether or not you have a contract in place. So importing the whole contract in place um, piece, that this ongoing three-year contract, is, is actually adding this layer, this, this fiction, that somehow or another um, you can have an unfair labor practice as an unfair labor practice if you have a contract, but not if you don't have a contract. If it's an unfair labor practice, it's an unfair labor practice. So what would happen if the firefighters, the, if the union's position is taken, is that the city just would not be able to reorganize a fire department if it had to for, for budget reasons, for public safety reasons, if the effect is to, is to impair a union in some way. It, it just would hamstring cities or employers from being able to do that. And that cannot be what PELRA intended because the public policy in PELRA is that the, the rights of the public to health, welfare, education, safety is paramount. That's a paramount consideration. And in order to be able to fulfill that, that paramount duty, an employer needs to be able to act swiftly and with flexibility to address 
issues as they arise, particularly in a case but, such but as counsel, this. Counsel, I want to just push back a little bit on it being the paramount right, because when you look through the entire uh, section of, of 179A.01 on the public policy, it also talks about in paragraph two, for instance, that as a result of the unique relationship between employers and employees, you have to have unique approaches to negotiations and resolution of disputes between public employees and employers. And down in uh, three, it talks about that we're establishing PELRA to, among other things, uh, provide for the protection of the rights of public employees because of the unique position that they're in. So I think it's what the legislature was striving for was more of a balance than you seem to be suggesting here today. I'm, I'm citing directly from the statute, which says it is a paramount right. Where does it say it's a paramount right? I, I see that. Okay. I agree. Okay. I, I stand corrected. Paramount right of the citizens of the state to keep inviolate the guarantees for their health, education, safety, and welfare. I guess my point is there are other provisions that go on to talk about the balance that I think the, uh, the legislature was trying to achieve. That's true. There's a balance. But the position of the union here does not maintain a balance at all. What it says is if there's a union in place, that union is in place, and it's an unfair labor practice to impair that union. That's it. So it always goes to the employee. There's no other consideration in play here. And what the city is saying in this, in, in this case is you do have to maintain a balance. You have to maintain the balance between, you know, you, you recognize the employee's rights, yes. But at the same time, you have to consider the employer's need for flexibility, especially in a situation where you're talking about vital public services, vital public safety services. So is it fair to summarize the city's position as follows? The city did interfere with the existence of the union, but did so for good reason. It did sort of for vital reasons, yes. So you would agree with that statement? It's difficult not to. I mean, of, of course. But, you know, there are so many actions that you could say interferes with the existence or administration of a union. For instance, laying off employees could interfere with the existence or administration of a union to the extent that employees are paying, paying union dues. So if you lay off employees, you lose union dues. To what extent does that impair with the existence or administration of a union? Well, the, the Court of Appeals said, in this case, the city acknowledged that its fire department restructuring resulted in the elimination of the entire union. That's a, that's a correct statement, isn't it? Of the bargaining unit, not the entire union. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. You want to take a run at the specific versus general discussion that the Chief Justice had with Mr. Tannock and how it might apply to your uh, analysis of this case, of the, of the conflict between these two statutes? Certainly. The specific provision is the provision in the inherent um, managerial policy definition, which, which speaks specifically to organizational, organization, to budget, to selection of personnel, etc. The more general is that an employer can't do anything to interfere with the existence or administration of a union. That's incredibly broad. It doesn't say exactly what those acts would be. And so definitely the more specific provision is in inherent managerial uh, rights, and so it takes that out from under the unfair labor practices provision. What about with regard to the budget that, in terms of the specific versus general, that there were other options available to the city? Like, as I understand it, they didn't think to raise property taxes or didn't raise property taxes uh, for this whole period, for a decade. Um, I mean, that's, that's another budget option they could have pursued, which strikes me as being making the budget kind of a more general issue than speaking specifically to the issue around whether you eliminate the union positions or not. Raising property taxes is, is a policy determination that's made by the elected officials. And the elected officials in this situation made the determination that it was more important to not make, uh, you know, to not further burden taxpayers. I, I understand and that, but that's a... That's kind of, there's many options. Doing a budget is a very general, oh, I see is a very general subject versus a specific subject of whether you're doing an unfair labor practice. So a budget can be about labor, it could be about raising property taxes, it could be about making cuts in other areas, it could be about going out and getting grants. So I, I'm just, how, doesn't it seem like that's a more general subject? 
No, I don't believe so because it's true that you can, you can go and you can do all those things, but it still pertains to the budget. I mean, it's a very specific thing, a budget. So it's the organization of a, of a, of a public employer. Those are specific areas. We're talking about something where, you know, just the general thing that says, and, and oh, can anything you also that just, compares. I think we'll have one more question. We have a lot of more questions, so just stay there. Justice Thiessen, then Justice Anderson, then Justice Lujan. Yeah, so, um, you know, I forgot it now, so why don't you go and I'll come back to it. All right. So uh, if I were to invite Mr. Tannock back up here, I think on the specific versus general, he'd say, all oh, that's very interesting, but, um, you know, the specific piece here is the elimination of the union, that that is, that, that, that you know, um, that's, that's a specific point um, that's at least as significant as the personnel issue. How would you respond to that? Well, we're talking about an issue of statutory construction and the elimination of the union is not, is not actually in the, the statute itself. Um, as to whether or not the, the statute actually speaks to the situation, honestly, I don't think that the legislature ever considered a situation like this. And so what you have is you have, uh, you have a statutory scheme that doesn't address this specifically. All you have is you have the policy to look at to say what is it that the legislature was trying to do. And what the legislature was trying to do, it was trying to strike the balance, but it was saying at the same time that the public policy is that the public's interests are paramount. And so to say that, oh, well, you know, just because a union is there, you can't do anything to be flexible to address those public interests is to completely turn that policy upside down on its head. Council, just a cleanup question. If we were to agree with the city's position, um, what would be, what would we do with the case? Would we remand it to the Court of Appeals to decide the 2-1 and the 2-3 questions? No, no, because the issues of um, whether or not there was anti-union animus have already been decided. The court looked, the lower courts looked in detail at the motivation and there was no Yeah, but that was in the context of a First Amendment retaliation claim and the court determined that, that um, the union members did not carry their burden to show that the restructuring was directly in response to their statements. But there was the, nothing the, the else. The general question of anti-union animus was not decided, was it? No, but as far as facts, those were the only facts. The only facts that were, that were submitted to the court were the facts in support of those particular claims. And the court found that none of those facts um, supported the, the allegation that the city acted with any kind of wrongful okay. motive. Thank you, counsel. Thank so you very much. I, I, oh, I did sorry. remember. So, there is, so there's this larger question of that this is in the interest of the public safety, that that's the paramount concern. But I'm reading the resolution and everything in the resolution talks about budget constraints. And so how does eliminating full-time firefighters actually serve the public safety? Or was, that, was there anything in the record that actually shows that, 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 that people are gonna get their fires responded to more quickly and put out more quickly or medical emergencies are responded to more quickly? No, but there, there are oh. facts in the record that show that it was a public safety issue and that's, that's some of the things that I it's talked about. It's a public about. safety issue because it involves firefighting. It's a public safety issue because the city was unable to do things like pay for a fire truck. Because okay? of budget constraints. Because of budget constraints. But there's no, nothing was, in the record, and I think you already answered this, and all I'm asking, and we're, I think we're out of time, but is that there's nothing in the record that actually this is going to make fire response times or public safety improved. It's just that they had to save money, and this is how they decided to do it. It wasn't to improve public safety, but it was to keep public safety from becoming, um, from degrading over time. Thank you, counsel. Thank you very much. Thanks to all counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. Uh, this matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.